Well, thank you, Priesty. Uh, I remember when I was young, being taught to read the Bible in a way that, that might help me make the Bible my own. That was the, that was the idea. Um, I was supposed to insert my name in the text, and you've probably been told to do that. So John 3.16, for God so loved Don that he gave, sent his only begotten son so that if Don would believe in him, Don would inherit everlasting life or something like that. And that can be helpful because it reminds us that the Bible is for us. But there are two actually pretty big dangers with doing that. There's probably more than two, but only two I could think of. Um, the first is that I might insert my name in a text that doesn't apply directly to me. Right? I might put my name in the wrong place. I mean, what, you, you know, it, 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 a lot of people are familiar with 1 Chronicles 4.10, and it says, Jabez called on the name upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God granted what he asked. The question is, is it really okay for me to say, Don can call upon the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border, and that your hand might be with me, and that you would keep me from harm, so that it might not bring me pain. And God will grant what Don asks. Do I have permission to do that in that passage? I mean, it sounds nice, but honestly, it's not right. Jabez was of Israel. I am of the church. Jabez had an enlargeable property. I have a backyard. Right? I mean, that was the sign of prosperity. And the big one, there is no promise anywhere in the Bible that says, and as God answered Jabez's prayer, he will answer yours for prosperity. It's not in there. So it's wrong for me to insert my name in a text that doesn't apply directly to me. But I might also make the mistake of making a very individualistic application of a passage that's meant to be for a, a community or a universal passage. Take example of 1 Peter 2.9, where Peter writes, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. But if I make that just about me, I've missed what Peter is saying. Uh, right? Because I, I just can't replace the plural, you all are, with Don is. This is a declaration about the church, the body of Christ. There's no singular nounage going on in there. It's a plural race, a plural nation, a plural priesthood, a plural people who are as a people to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, certainly I'm part of that, but it's not just me, right? So it's wrong for me to insert my name in a text where it might not belong or, or to make something individualistic by inserting my name in where it's really a community text. And that's something to keep in mind as we study the book of the prophet Amos. Because people love to do that kind of thing with Old Testament prophets. Insert my name, insert my nation, insert, insert my whatever here. And that's a little dangerous and risky. So we want to try not to do that as we look at Amos. So Amos chapters 1 and 2, most of what we're looking at, actually 1-3 to 2-3 this morning, and this is a passage that is a series of judgments 
against ancient nations. Not modern individuals, ancient nations. If you go ahead and put the next slide up. There you go, you get another map. It's like two maps in a row. Right? So, here in the I'm going to go over here. So, here in the middle, you've got the southern kingdom of Judah, the covenant people of God, and, and the northern kingdom of Israel, the covenant people of God that don't get along. Right? And what we're going to look at in 1-3-2-3 to this morning is God pronouncing judgment on surrounding nations. We're going to have Tyre, which is part of this, the Phoenician states. We're going to have Gaza down here, part of the Philistines. We're going to have Damascus up here, which is actually part of the kingdom of, no one calls it that, Syria. Um, and then we're going to have the kingdom of Ammon, the kingdom of Moab, and the kingdom of Eden. And God's going to pronounce judgment on those non-covenant peoples. So these are very secular nations that we're looking at this morning that God is pronouncing judgment on. So it's a little, little different than if he's pronouncing judgment on Israel or, or Judah. These are ancient nations. So that means we probably can't plug our names in where the nations show up and just say it's all about us. You might sin in the way these nations sinned, and you shouldn't do that. Sin, sin, don't do it. But he's talking about nations, and I think we need to look at it that way this morning and read these judgments and, and look at what he's saying to these nations and then cross the bridge of time and ask, what would God say to other secular nations outside of his covenant? Right? Because in that day, you had covenant people that were nations, right? Israel and Judah. But in our day, we just read 1 Peter 2.9, right? Who is the royal nation in our day? It's the body of Christ, the church. It's not a nation with physical boundaries, right? So all nations with physical boundaries are like the ones we're going to look at this morning. All nations with physical boundaries are like the one we're going to look at this morning. Because the royal nation, the people of God now, is the church. So we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there, but that's going to help us cross the bridge of time. But before we do that, I think we ought to read the Word. So I'm going to ask if you stand, if you're able. Read Amos chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Timon, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their kings shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the sound of the trumpet, I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Father, we have no doubt as we read this passage, this is your word. Over and over we read, thus says the Lord. God, it is your word spoken by your prophet to Israel about the nations. But Lord, we believe that you have preserved it and it is here in our Bibles because it is your word for us this morning. So God, help us to hear your word, to believe its message, to write it on our hearts, and to be your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. God judges the nations. Our question this morning is how? How does God judge the nations? And I think what we're going to see, I hope, hope we can see, that God judges the secular nations of men for three crimes. For three crimes. Um, as I said before, these, are the, these first six judgments are on pagan nations, not the Old Testament people of God. So the question you might ask to start is, why would God judge secular nations? The answer, of course, is really easy. Because God is God over all nations, not just Israel and Judah. If we were to look to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 says, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of God. God Himself is the one who defines the nations. They exist by His divine plan. Or we go to the prophet Jeremiah. And we look at verse chapter 18 of Jeremiah, starting at verse 7. We read, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation 
concerning which I have spoken turns from it evil, I will relent of the disaster I intend to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good I had intended to do to it. Nations exist in the first place because God sets up nations, but then nations are judged by God. God said, I will judge them based on the way they act as nations. The six nations in Amos 1, 3 through 2, 3 have not listened to the voice of God and have done evil, and so God judges the nations. And he does it by really taking them to court, is what we will see. He, he pronounces a ruling. Now, you've probably noticed that each nascent nation is judged, it says, for three transgressions and for four. And if you're like me, what you looked for immediately was a list of four things. And it's not there, is it? It's just not there. Well, it's a figure of speech. And what it means is they, they have filled their sin quota to the brim. They've completely filled it up. For three, no, four, and it, what he's saying, I could go five, six, seven, eight, nine, I could keep going is what he's saying. They have filled up their sin to the brim. And God judges these six nations, and he does it in groups. There's, he judges the first two for a certain crime, the second two for a certain crime, and the third two for a certain crime. You can kind of see that in the way it's worded, which is helpful. Look for repetition when you study your Bible. The first two, the first two nations, we have that 3-4 statement, and then we have a because statement. Here's why I'm doing it. And then we have a long, so I will do this statement, and then a closing, says the Lord statement. Both the first two are, are, are put together that way. But then the next two, we got the 3-4 statement, a because statement, a short so I will statement, and nothing else for the next two. And then the last three, he kind of goes back to what he was at the first. The three-four statement, the because statement, the long so I will statement, and in the closing, says the Lord. So we have three groups of two, and that's how we're going to look at it, because those groups really reflect a certain sin that is being addressed. Let's have a look at the, at the beginning. First of all, what we see in the first two nations, God judges the nations for their cruelty to other nations. God judges the nations for their cruelty to other nations. We look at Damascus and Gaza here. Damascus was the, the royal city of Syria, and, and the nation was often called Damascus because it's the royal city of Syria. And it's judged because of the way they treated Gilead when they were at war with Gilead. The, the latter part of the 8th century B.C., Damascus attacked Gilead over and over and over and over. And as they did, they were brutal and inhumane in how they treated the nation that they were at war with. Verse 3 says they, they used threshing sledges of iron. A, a threshing sledge is used to process grain. It's a, it's a heavy weight that is drug over the grain, and it, it might have blades in it too, and as you drag it over the grain, it just 
crushes the grain and takes the husk from the kernel, and it, but it, it crushes it to do that. And what, what Amos, God through Amos is saying, this is the way Syria treated Gilead. They just kept coming with this heavy burden and just crushing the people and destroying them. They weren't satisfied with defeating them or conquering them. They were cruel. And they brutalized Gilead. They treated Gilead like a crop to be harvested, not like a people made in the image of God. That's what Damascus did. And God will judge Damascus. If you look at verses 4 and 5, God will judge Damascus. He will send fire to destroy the household of their king, Hazael, who's of the family of Ben-Hadad. That's those two names. And God sent that fire from Kir in Assyria. Now, whether it was literal fire or figurative, something came in like a rushing fire to defeat them. Both are true. In some cases, one, some the other. But the, the people from Kir in Assyria came in in 732, just like God said, and they, they did in Damascus. The gates, like God said, the gates that protected the city were destroyed. The leaders were killed, and the people were taken into exile. And that's Damascus, judged for cruelty to Gilead in wartime. Then we look at Gaza. Gaza, if you remember the map, Gaza was down south. It's one of the, the cities. The, the Philistines really weren't as much a nation as they were these little city-states that made up the nation. And, and the big one was Gaza, but there were others, and we see them actually three of the others listed in this prophecy too. And what, and what God is saying is, I, I'm coming to judge the Philistines when he says Gaza. And they're judged because of the way they treat other nations also. Instead of the sin of brutality, they practice the cruel treatment of others by treating them as a commodity. They captured and sold off entire communities as slaves. Now, it wasn't strange that when army went against army, if, if, if army A defeated army B, that they would then take all the captives of army B and sell them as slaves, right? All the soldiers would be sold as slaves. That was not odd. In this day, that happened all the time. But what Gaza did is they went into communities and took whole cities captive and sold them as slaves. Civilians, too. And they did this, actually, to the people of Judah several times, to the southern kingdom. They treated people like cattle. Not like people created in the image of God. They came in and treated people like livestock. They turned them into a product for profit instead of as people. They're motivated by money and nothing else. And for that, God himself will judge the Philistines. He will judge Gaza. He'll send a fire to overcome her defenses, he says. God sent that fire in the form of Assyria in the 8th century B.C. And then in what remained of the Philistines, in the 6th century B.C., God sent Babylon. Their gates were destroyed, their leaders were killed, and they felt the wrath of God. Gaza was judged for her cruelty as she treated other nations like commodities. So God judges Damascus and Gaza because of the way they treat 
other nations. They're cruel to other nations. Now, folks, all around the world today, we see nations treating other nations with cruelty. Brutalizing civilians in times of war and treating people like commodities. So you really shouldn't have trouble reading this and going, I can't believe people would do that. And understanding where we might be able to look at this today. God judges the nations for their cruelty to other nations. And then in the second grouping, what we see is that God judges the nations for their cruelty to brother nations. That's about as poetic as I get. Other nations, brother nations. Um, but God judges the nations for their cruelty to brother nations. And that's what we see starting in verse 9 as we look at the second pair, Tyre and Edom. Now, in, in verse 9, you, you might remember where Tyre was. It was up on the coast to the north, the Phoenician states. It was the center of really, it was the economic center of the ancient world. Tyre is where the money went, Right? So, they were guilty of something, but they weren't selling people like Gaza were. They were the bank. They were arranging the deals. They were the brokers in these deals, selling people. And they were brokering deals to sell off whole communities, not just of neighboring nations, but of nations that should have been treated as brothers. If you remember the Old Testament, you will remember when David had his great plan to build the temple... You remember he went to a man who could provide all the lumber. His name was Hiram. And Hiram was the king of Tyre. And Tyre made an a alliance with Israel. There was a great treaty of friendship made during the temple-making days. And that continued with Solomon, that treaty. They were brothers of the Israelites by treaty. I mean, the words show up in that time. So... 250 years before Amos, these people had said, we are brothers with the people of Israel. And now, they're arranging deals for people to come in and take slaves in Israel and sell them to other nations. They're brokering deals for slaves. They were to treat Israel like family. They're treating them like a commodity. As the broker. So verse 10, God is going to send a fire to destroy the security of Tyre. And we know he does that. Tyre falls to Nebuchadnezzar around 580 B.C. And, and what he leaves, Alexander the Great comes in and cleans up completely around 332 B.C. And that's Tyre. And then there's Edom. You remember Edom is one of those nations on the, the southeast side. Edom and Israel had, had been at odds. They'd been at odds almost since the day of the patriarchs Jacob and Esau. They parted ways. Edom and Israel parted ways because Edom's brotherhood with Israel lies there. Edom is the line of Esau and Israel is the line of Jacob, Esau's brother. These folks are cousins, right? Now, I don't know the number on it. I was never good at that once removed or second cousin thing. But these are cousins. 
But verse 3 says, Edom had made their mission to remain at war with Israel. Edom, Edom just wanted to continue to fight with Israel. I don't, I don't know why he said verse 3. Verse 11, um, he pursues his brother with the sword and casts off all pity. His anger tears perpetually in his wrath forever. There was like one brief period when David conquered Edom and there was peace between Edom and Israel, and that's it. Otherwise, they are enemies. When it came to their cousins, Israel, Edom stayed angry, showed no pity, and was always ready to attack. In fact, when Babylon invaded Judah in, in 586 B.C., Edom came in and raided villages in Judah, sent prisoners to the Babylonians. So, I mean, they, 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 went fam, they went against their family when their family is suffering at a foreign army. Verse 12, God will bring that fire of judgment on Edom. From its great southern city, Timon, that's the great city in the south of Edom, to the great northern capital of Bozra. So from the south to the north, all of Edom will suffer the judgment of God. And in fact, Edom did suffer many times under many people. They still kind of almost existed, even in Jesus' day. You remember, Herod is an Idumean. It's an Edomite. But after the Jews rebelled against Rome in AD 70, the, the Idumeans sided with the Jews, and you never hear of the Idumeans in history ever again. Edom's gone. So Tyre was a brother to Israel by treaty. Edom was a brother to Israel by blood. And they both trampled on that brotherhood. And God judges Tyre and Edom for their cruelty to brother nations. And think about it. How many nations in our day, if you've ever studied history at all, how many nations in our day move from being allies to enemies within a single generation? I mean, if you read history, how quick they are to switch sides and attack one another. Treaties and, and promises of, uh, of fealty and brotherhood, they, they just disappear immediately. And how many ethnic-related people are at war? Matter of fact, if you look at our world, ethnic-related groups are almost more likely to go at war against each other than groups that are completely different today. <clears throat> you see, the, <clears throat> excuse me. the sins of Tyre and Edom go on today. So we, we shouldn't be surprised that God judges this kind of sin. So God judges the nations for their cruelty to others, and for their cruelty to brother nations, and God judges the nations for their cruelty to the weak. For their cruelty to the weak. When we get to verse 13, excuse me, there's a third pair, Ammon and Moab, the other two nations. In verse 13, we have Ammon. The Ammonite war with Gilead is not recorded anywhere else in the Bible, but it must have been a doozy. To prevent any future problems with Gilead, when Ammon went in and conquered Gilead, the Ammonites attacked and brutally murdered pregnant women. I mean, targeted the pregnant women in Gilead. Why would they do that? And the only answer I can think of 
is they assumed if there are no babies to grow up to be soldiers, we'll never have problems with Gilead again. And so they went after the pregnant mothers. They brutally attacked the weak and the vulnerable in a nation, which, by the way, our nation doesn't recognize, but, but expectant mothers are to be treated specially as vulnerable and the source of our future hope, not with brutality and violence. The Ammonites brutally attacked these weak and vulnerable women, and they did it for one reason. They wanted the land. Think about that. Think about how that's the very opposite of the, the normal noble concern that when the ship is sinking, it's women and children first. This people could go in and defeat a nation and say, let's go after the pregnant mothers. Women with children in the womb became the target. And in verse 14, God's fiery judgment on them is that he will destroy their capital at Rabbah entirely entirely, devouring its strongholds, its protective walls, destroying its forts, exiling its kings and its princes, removing them completely. These people attacked innocent unborn children and their mothers in Gilead. They were cruel to those on the bottom of the power ladder. And so God says, I'm going to destroy you from the top down, is what he says. And so that's Ammon. And they're, they're cruel to the weak and the vulnerable. And we look at Moab in verse 1 of chapter 2. The Moabites, they go after the hopeless. They go after people who've already been defeated and try to destroy any hope or morale they might have. Apparently, Edom had already lost to Moab. Their king was dead. He's in the grave. And so the Moabites dig him up and burn his bones. To ash. They burn his bones to ash in front of the Edomites' eyes. They want to demoralize an already defeated foe. They, they say, you are weak, you are defeated, we've already got you, but we don't want you to have any hope, we don't want you to have any joy, we don't want you to even be able to look back at the past, at this good king you had, we will burn his bones. And God will judge the Moabites for the way they treat the weak. Kiriath, an ancient capital, will be devoured and the nation will die as the trumpets of its enemies play. Their kings and their princes will be taken from them in an act of poetic justice against the people who had burned the bones of a king. They attacked the nation's honor, the nation's memory, they dishonored the king's grave and they will be destroyed and their kings will be taken from them. So be it the unborn, the mother with their child, or the hearts of a defeated people, God judges Ammon and Moab for their cruelty to the vulnerable and the weak. And friends, in a day when the unborn are not even safe at the hands of, of their own people, we must assume that it's not a far stretch to think they would be unsafe at the hands of enemies. The vulnerable and hopeless are still the object of abuse throughout the world one nation against another. So the sins of Ammon and Moab go on. God judges the nations for their cruelty to other nations, to brother nations, and to the weak and the vulnerable. Well, we don't live in the days of ancient kingdoms. Nations today are structured and they're ruled differently, aren't they? And Amos, Amos, you know, it's good to remember, Amos wasn't actually talking to these nations either. Amos was talking to Israel about these nations. God was going to do this. This was actually a word of encouragement 
to Israel about the way God was going to treat these cruel people. Even so, I think we need to deal with, with these passages from Amos ourselves. Now, most obviously, I think we have to say, if the United States of America does not want to fall under God's judgment, it must not go the way of these cruel nations. We must not be like them. I don't think that's a stretch. We are a secular nation. Right? God did not appoint a king over us. And therefore, we are like these nations. And if we go their way, we will suffer judgment. And it will be total. You haven't met any Moabites or Ammonites recently, have you? The judgment was total. And that's a solid way to apply this, but I don't think it's specific enough. I want to I do is I want to offer you three specific things that you can do with Amos 1.3 to 2.3. And really kind of dialing down on that, if the United States does not want this judgment, we need to not go that way. And the first specific thing I'll suggest is this. You can remember that your nation is under God. Remember that your nation is under God. It's right there in the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, one nation under God. But boy, it's easy to forget. What does that mean to you? What does it mean to you that your nation is under God? It means this. It means there is a, an authority higher than the highest authority found in any government office in the United States. There is an authority over them. It means there is an authority higher than all of the accumulated authority of every government office in the United States. It means there is even, and this is harder for Americans... There is even an authority higher than the voice of the people in the United States. We are under God. God is over our nation. Remember again how Jesus introduced the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If anyone else has authority, it's under the authority of Jesus. We need to remember that and let that be our guide as citizens of this nation. As Christian citizens in this republic of ours, we must always remember that we are citizens of a greater kingdom under a greater king. When man's rule does not contradict with God's rule, then we must submit to the rulers that have been placed over us by that highest authority, God. If they have authority, it is God-given. Romans tells us that. However, when man's rule does contradict God's rule, we must say what the apostles said when they faced the council and the high priest. We must obey God rather than man. God is over our nation. And that means, if it means nothing else, it means this. When the United States government or any state government says that abortion is a right, we fight against that lie. We fight for the life of the baby in the womb every way we can, and we support any other person who is doing that. We tell our nation, we must obey God rather than you. So first of all, you can remember your nation is under God. Second of all, you can remember that God cares about how one nation treats another nation's people. God cares about how one nation treats another nation's people. 
There will be wars. Till Jesus comes, there will be wars. Nations will always fail to find peaceful solutions to their disagreements, and they will go to war. If our nation goes to war, we need to do everything we can to be sure that we conduct a just war that recognizes that God cares about how our nation treats the citizens of other nations. Our goal in war cannot be motivated by greed. Right? We saw greed. It led to people selling other people. Our goal in war must not be the, our prosperity at the cost of the suffering of other nations. We can't go to war so that we can have an easy life and other nations suffer. Our method in war must never be genocidal. Our goal is never to kill off all the people. Which there's some nations today that need to look at that. And our approach to war must protect the vulnerable and the non-combatant. We don't go after the folks who happen to be under a bad government and they're trying to live and trying to survive under a bad government. We don't go destroy them. We must elect leaders and raise our children to understand that humiliation, violent abuse, and degradation of the people of a nation is never right, even if they're our enemy. We must be a voice for that, even when the nations we go to war with are not. Because God cares about how nations treat other nations. So you can remember that your nation is under God. You can remember that God cares about how one nation treats the citizens of another nation. And you can remember that God stands against violence and oppression. God stands against violence and oppression. We're going to see that over and over in Amos. The ancient world of Amos was a violent place. It, it was a violent place. There were no peace-loving or gentle neighbors of Israel. Once they entered the promised land, they were in danger because their neighbors were violent people. You see... This, this is just a simple truth. Secular nations that don't recognize God become violent people. Secular nations that don't go the way of peace and gentleness of our Savior, that are not filled with the fruit of the Spirit, will go after violence. We see it on the streets of our nation. When our people become other, uh, other people's enemies, in the last three years, what have we seen? When one group declares themselves an enemy of another group, what do they resort to? They go to violence. Right? The hearts of men let their anger boil over in violence and oppression. And we, as the people of the Prince of Peace, cannot be people of violence. One of the greatest stains on the history of the church was when the church said it needed to form armies and carry flags to defeat the infidel with swords. Where they would say, just kill them all and let God sort them out. God forgive us. We must stand in opposition to violence and oppression of our friends and our enemies. And we must call our leaders to do the same. And, and I think it's a big deal today for us to remember that because 
many of our leaders are using the language of violence that leads people to do deeds of violence. And we cannot endorse that. Look at the fruit of the Spirit sometime and ask how you as a Christian could endorse that kind of language that leads to that kind of behavior. We cannot. It would be easy for me to, to look at this thing in Amos and give you a commentary on world affairs this morning, and I probably slipped into that a couple of times. But the fact is, I'm not the world's pastor. I'm yours. And friends, our nation will only avoid the judgment that God brought on these secular nations if we take to heart the fact that God is over us and we are the people of God by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. If we recognize this, in our fallen hearts, we are violent, evil, wicked people who would do everything these nations did if we had a chance. That in our fallenness, we are just like Tyre. We're just like Gaza and Edom and Ammon. Just like all of them. But by the grace of God, the Father sent His Son to save us from our own hearts. He sent His Son to take on our sin and our wickedness, pay the price for that so that we could be forgiven, but not only forgiven, so that we could be changed. If any man is in new Christ, he is a new creation. And what that new creation looks like, it looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and gentleness. Not like this. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, I, I think that for us, what we need to look at this is, is we need to be able to look at who we are as Americans in light of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. And put the Jesus Christ part first. And friend, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't bow the knee to Him as the one who has authority even over your nation, I want to beg of you, I want to beg of you, turn to Jesus Christ. Don't let the wickedness rule in your heart another day longer. Find forgiveness. Find peace. Find hope in Jesus Christ and be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word because Your Word is true and good. And Lord, as we read these harsh words that You sent from Your prophet about these nations, we recognize that Your justice is perfect and good. And we praise You as a God of justice. But Lord, we also recognize that our hearts deserve that justice. That in our fallen state, Lord, that each one of us deserves the condemnation that You poured out even on these nations. But by Your grace and by Your mercy shown to us in Christ, we can know something different. So Lord, I pray for each of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that You would help us remember that our nation is a nation under God. And help us to remember that the way nations treat nations matters to You. Lord, help us to remember that violence and oppression are not Your way. 
and help us to follow Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Tom,